Good morning, everybody. So good to be with all of you. It's such a privilege to study the scriptures. Before we jump in, I uh, want to make sure that we welcome everybody online. Can we just give a big warm welcome to those joining us on live stream? And if you're new with us, so grateful that you're here. If you're not new with us, so grateful that you're here and um, excited uh, for this day. If you're brand new, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, There's many a medical expert that would say the number one health crisis in America is anxiety and mental health in relationship to panic attacks, depression, anxiety, etc. And they may be right. 30% of the U.S. population deals with anxiety of some form or another. There's a wide spectrum. Uh, I don't want to in any way minimize uh, one, the, the extre- extreme sides of that, especially uh, when it relates to the need for uh, a medication or things like that. 32% of 13 to 18-year-olds struggle with anxiety on a daily basis. One in five adults take anti-anxiety medication daily. In 2010, there were 253 million anti-anxiety medication prescriptions. In the last 12 years, it has doubled. Anti-anxiety medication prescriptions is the leading indicator of depression. Uh, About half of those who are dealing with anxiety uh, experience depression in some form or another, which actually is believed to be higher because that's only the reported number. In 2020, calls to mental health hotlines went up 900%. That number has not declined back to pre-pandemic levels. 60% of adults feel stress and anxiety on a daily basis. That might be future. What are we going to do? How's this going to work out? Your kids, what's going on with them? Worried about them, worried about decisions, their future, COVID, finances. Am I going to find a date? Uh, The agenda of the left or the right? I mean, you name it, right? The inflation, the job market, the list goes on and on. Maybe some of you even walking in here or just getting out of bed this morning or on your way. Maybe as Sarah was describing, anxious to be in a new place if you're brand new with us. And it somehow seems to swirl and oftentimes seems to increase. Maybe Jesus was aware of the reality of this, not just in our day, but throughout the li- throughout history and in the lives of humans, that we have a tendency to worry. Which, throughout the Scripture, the command, don't worry, don't be afraid, do not fear, is the number one command that gets repeated the most over 150 times. Maybe recognizing that it's, a, it's, a con- it's, a, it's part of the human condition to lean into worry. We're in the series studying through the Sermon on the Mount. We're taking our journey slowly through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We started this journey in the beginning of February this year, and we'll finish it at the end of October this year. And we're in chapter 6, towards the end of chapter 6. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus four times says, don't worry. Last week, Craig Springer was here. And if you missed his message last week, I cannot encourage you enough. Uh, Listen or watch online. He crushed it. Such an important message. But he said that worry is the gateway to anxiety, and anxiety is the road to slavery, to fear. And fear, Thomas Aquinas, philosopher and theologian from the 1200s, said fear causes a contraction of the soul. 
We get paralyzed, right? Fear and anxiety can paralyze us. It can cause us to not step into something maybe we want to step into or do something because of the fear of what might happen and, and how things might go. And we get, we get overwhelmed with the what-ifs. And we may not lose our breath, breath fully, but we feel this like uh, a, a shortness of breath. Henry Nouwen in his book, Spiritual Formation, says, Fear engenders fear. It never gives birth to love. And our culture isn't hap- helping these days. N- watch the news. It's full of fear. New- and, it's, and it's marketed through fear. Fear seems to win elections these days. And advertising doesn't help either. Highlighting to all of us the things we don't have. Inflaming our discontents. Stoking fears of not having enough or being enough. But Jesus has another way. Jesus has another way than the cultural medication of our day of numbing or escaping. To numb is to to, to have another drink. To somehow soften the edges. To, to, to engage with a substance. Somehow maybe I can numb to the, to the pain and the, and the press. Or escape. And that might look like Netflix binging. Or that might look like the extreme of taking one's own life. To escape it all. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34, there is another way. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear... If not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Isn't that great? Don't worry. Become a bird watcher. <laughs> Are you not much more valuable than they? The reason he says that is because in the first century, a bird would have cost a couple of pennies. Like for us, it would be like a buck. Like if, if God takes care of something that's not doesn't cost that much, how much more valuable are you than they? So therefore, if they're taken care of, look at the birds. Ponder the birds and think, if they're taken care of, is God going to take care of me? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Point here is, does it help? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. When he references pagans, what he's talking about is those who don't trust God, those who haven't put their faith in God, meaning that they're relying on their own strength to make it through life. Jesus' point here is is that rugged individualism is not compatible with the way of Jesus. To think, I got this, I can do this, this is all on me, and I'm going to do it. That is not compatible with the way of Jesus. Jesus is all about us relying on Him and of one another. Now you might say, hey, I don't deal with anxiety. I'm not a worrier, so please don't check out for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
Go check out because you could be sitting next to, living with, or I'm sure you have people in your life that navigate this on a daily basis. And it's valuable to know and understand the people around us so that we can be caring, compassionate, and helpful. The other part of it is that you, you might think, well, I, just, I don't sit in the corner and bite my nails. I'm not, I'm not a worrier. But worry shows up in different ways. So sometimes you think, oh, I'm not a worrier because I don't chew my nails in the corner. But you know what, what worry and fear oftentimes shows itself as? Anger. Because, because you're afraid of things not going the way that you want them to go. And so as a result, we try to control things and we get angry. We get angry with things not being like we hope they should go or want them to go or think they need to go in order for things to work out like we want them to. And so Jesus lands this little teaching on worry by saying, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, maybe you hear that, don't worry, and you think, oh, that would be wonderful. I'd love to just not. It's not always how it works, though. But we, we love the idea of the peace of God. I want that. For some of you in here, maybe, maybe the struggle is intense. Maybe it's, it's less intense, but it's pretty constant. It's an undercurrent. Whatever the case might be, doesn't that sound amazing? No anxiety. No waking up in the middle of the night. No overwhelming of your mind with the concerns and the worries, whether it be about food, clothing, the future, or a myriad of other things. So we crave God's peace. But I'd like to suggest that we have to face the question, do we trust His methods too? See, do we believe what Jesus said when He said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you? Basically, I'll take care of it. We'll get that worked out. Do we, we want the peace? Do we trust the method to get there? Do we really believe that if we fix on a, fixate on provision, that anxiety will be get thrown in? Or, or do we believe that if we fixate on Jesus, provision will get thrown in? Which one are we going to choose? Now you might say, okay. So are you just saying the provision is going to fall from the sky, miraculously provided if I just don't worry about it? No. What Jesus is talking about here is that a new life has been adopted and a new community has been created when we follow in the way of Jesus. Which means that the community of faith around us that we've been adopted into will be part of the kingdom of God showing itself in our lives. If you read Acts chapter 2, in the very beginning of the church, we, we see that those who did not have enough were provided for by the ones who had more than enough. We're about to have Citigroup launch Sunday here in just a couple of weeks. You're going to hear about, if you're new to our church, uh, you're, you're going to hear about Citigroups consistently and constantly, maybe to the point of annoyance. The reason is not just so that we can say, look how many city groups we have and look how many people are in them. It's, it's beyond that. It's beyond just a, oh, let's just do this and we hope it works. 
This is about us being in the place that when we have a need, we have, as we have seen in our city groups, rent gets paid, furniture gets donated, meals fill, fill fridges. Why? Because it just dropped out of the sky and popped into your fridge? No, it showed up through the hands of the community of faith. It, 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 we get into a city group so that when we're on the other side of that and our fridge is full or our bank account is full, that we see somebody who's in need and we say, I'll be over tomorrow morning and I'll be bringing this and I've got 10 people lined up. We're all going to come around you. We're going to make sure that this season, even though it's tough, even though you lost your job, even though this is happening, we're going to take care of you. Clarence Jordan, Bible translator said, the problem is not in supply, but in distribution. Not with God, but with us. Now, which means that this teaching is not just a psychological teaching, meaning like, I just need to have like peace of mind. I just need to meditate more and can I just live into Zen. This is a, this is a justice teaching. Yes, does Jesus care about our hearts and our minds, our souls? Absolutely. He always does. That's one of the points that he's making throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not just interested in external behavior. I'm interested in your heart. I'm interested in what's going on in the inside. But this is also a justice teaching, meaning that we care for one another and we help the, and bring justice to those who don't have, then we, we are a part of the solution where there is lack. Now, some of you might not identify as a worrier. And some of you might identify as a worrier. Do you worry? Absolutely. I worry about everything. I'm always worried. I mean, if you're not worried about something, you're worried that you're not worried about something, thinking you missed something to worry about. <laughs> right? I grew up not as a worrier. I would not have identified as somebody who worries about much of anything. I was kind of a take-life-as-it-comes kind of guy. And in 2011, my wife, Jossie, and I sensed God's leading to plant a church, to move from Colorado Springs, to move to Fort Collins, to plant Mill City Church. And the floodgates of anxiety opened in my life. I, I, remember, the first, I remember the first day. I remember waking up at about 4 o'clock in the morning, cloud over my head, overwhelmed. Now, I, I was, was not a familiar feeling to me, so I was like, okay, I just have a million things on my mind. So I just, I need to write them down, I need to get them done, and I had money that we were trying to raise, and a team we were trying to build, and a location, and a space we were trying to find to meet in, and all the different logistics to, to, to work on to establish a new church. So I kind of passed it off as just a lot on my mind. The next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, same thing. Weeks go by, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I chose, we chose the wrong place, we're not in the will of God. But then I looked back on the process of, of the ways that the Lord spoke to us and the confirmations from others and all the ways that the Lord had led, and I thought, no, that is not true. I know that this is where God is leading us, and we are taking a step of faith. And days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months. And after kind of trying everything I knew how to do, couldn't sleep, felt like a fog and a darkness settled in, my confidence was waning. I was insecure, thinking, and I'm second-guessing everything. And I started to ask, why? Why is this happening? Where is this coming from? What's underneath all of this? 
exploring it, asking the Holy Spirit to unearth some things in my life. And I came to the place where I realized that I had believed that my value was based on how successful I was. And to plant a church was walking into the land of uncertainty. The statistics for church planting are not great. Eight out of ten church plants aren't still there after five years. 80% failure rate. I thought, well, what's <laughs> that's great. Way to go. Let's go. Let's go succeed. Why am I going to be the exception to the rule? So the uncertainty about success was totally upending my heart and my life. And what I realized was that this idea that value is determined by success had been internalized and idolized. It had become an idol in my life. And the threat to that idol was causing me to live out of this place of anxiousness. C.S. Lewis says that idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. And that's where I found myself. Worry wasn't just because I was concerned. Worry had to do with some of the things that I had come to build my life on. I didn't even know it. Jonah chapter 2, book in the Old Testament, verse 8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I was clinging to this idol of success. And as a result, was missing out on the grace of God. The grace that says, I got you. The grace that says, I'll go before you. The grace that says, even if you fail, I'm with you. The grace that says, success isn't the only thing. Walking with me is the more important thing. The grace of God to flood in the places of being overwhelmed. To flood in in the places of feeling like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how things are going to work out. Tim Keller has a few different, has a, has a kind of a, a list of what to do when you are navigating or recognize and deal with an idol. Number one is to recognize. Recognize that you're going the wrong way. Oh, I'm pointed towards the wrong thing. I've put a good, maybe even a good thing, but I made it an ultimate thing. You've got to recognize it. Number two is to repent. Repentance just means to go a different way. To say, I'm going the wrong way, I need to go the right way. I'm going to turn towards the right way. The third thing, which Jesus exemplifies in this passage here in the Sermon on the Mount, is to replace. See, the Scripture might say, don't worry, don't be afraid, and you'd love to think, okay, great. Okay, now I don't worry anymore. Like, if we could change it like that, all of us would not worry, right? We, we, we see the command, but we have a hard time living into the command. And so we've got to replace worry with something, because otherwise it will just stay there. It will fill our lives and, and fill every corner and pocket of our minds and our hearts. So Jesus, in saying, don't worry, be a bird watcher, be a flower admirer, instead of worrying, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Replace worry with this focus. Make your top priority God's kingdom in His way is what He's saying. His kingdom and His way. Jonah continues on and he says, But I, instead of holding to worthless idols, sing a song of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice to you. Sing a song of sacrifice. After a few months, 
of realizing, okay, I, 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 this isn't about a list of things to do. This isn't about somehow I need to change my sleep patterns. I mean, I tried everything. I also realized I can't think my way out of this. I realized actually I, I was trying to think my way back to sleep. And that didn't help, but if anything, it made it worse. And so here I found myself at 3 o'clock in the morning, months and months into this. Over the course of that first year, I think I had what I would consider a good night's sleep less than five times. And I realized thinking's not helping, closing my eyes tired's not helping, having a list next to my bed's not helping. I'm going to get up. So I'd slip out of the room, make it into the living room, lights off. It was dark in the house, and it felt like it was dark in my, in my mind, and I just started to sing. Because I realized that I needed to replace worry with worship. Because, because if we're going to seek the kingdom, you've got to seek the king. We too often want the kingdom without the king. We want the fruit without staying connected to the root. We've got to, so I was just, you know what I started singing? Any song that I could think of that was about Jesus. Just, I mean, Jesus, name above all names, glorious Lord. Just singing the name of Jesus over and over again. See, because you can't think your way through everything, but you can worship your way through anything in the middle of the night. And I'd love to be able to say to you, if you do that one night, the next, next night I slept like a baby, and I didn't. The next night, 3 o'clock in the morning, woke up, got out of bed. And you know what? Week after week, night after night, month after month, I just got up, and I started worshiping. And it was dark, and you realize how bright those streetlights are outside of your house, and you're, and you're walking around the living room, and sometimes I'd walk around the living room until the light would start to break through as the sun would rise. And you know what happened month after month after month? You know what? The sun started to break in and started to rise in my heart. So we worship. We sing our prayers. We sing about God. We put Jesus front and center. We replace worry with worship and we replace worry with rest. Now you might say, well, that seems like a little ironic. You were trying to rest and you couldn't. I'm not talking about sleep. I'm talking about Sabbath. Now, this might seem a little like, well, that feels like a big left turn in our sermon as you're moving along. You know, like everything is making sense, and now you, I don't know where you are. But see, for me, I found this to be so important and so helpful because really what I wasn't doing was resting not just at night, but I wasn't resting in my mind and with all that was going on. Sabbath isn't... And rest isn't just a mental ascent. Like, I just need to, like, come to this place of mental rest and zen. It's about actually embodying and living into the reality. And one of the ways that we do that is through Sabbath. Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, number four in the ten, list of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath day holy. None of us would argue that we shouldn't murder somebody, but we regularly don't have a hard time Throwing number four away. It's the only spiritual formation practice involved in the Ten Commandments. It's not read your Bible, pray, but keep the Sabbath holy. Czech economist 
Thomas Sedlicek Sedlicek said in his book, The Economics of Good and Evil, said, it is paradoxical that there had to be a command to rest on the seventh day. One would think that the desire for such rest would be natural. However, there seems to be something in our nature that seeks to maximize, to continue relentlessly and indefinitely, to seek more and more. Really what he's talking about is our ability and desire to pass and press past our limits. Essentially, if we believe in and we're all about self-reliance, then we are going to take on the posture of God. God has no limits, but we do. And so to embrace Sabbath is to embrace our limits. Is to live into the reality that we need to stop even if God doesn't. We need to sleep even though God doesn't. So you might say, well, Sabbath, what's a Sabbath? I thought that was like a Jewish thing or an Old Testament thing or a Ten Commandment thing, but I don't know about a 2022 thing. Let me just give you a definition. Sabbath, a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, and practice delight. See, Sabbath is resistance. It's resistance against the cultural narrative that says, you are what you produce. Sabbath is resistance against our addiction to productivity. Sabbath is is a cultivator. It cultivates the ability, for some of you are going to get anxious when I say this, to enjoy wasting time. The idea of wasting time to you sounds like everything's wrong. It's the ability to come to the place where you're not doing anything that somehow seems productive. Eugene Peterson, translator of the message version of the Bible, he was a pastor for 30 years, wrote about 35 books, and he said, if you you don't work your paycheck-paying job and you just work at home doing your other things, it's a bastard Sabbath. So Sabbath looks like a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The point is is that we should experience delight, which means we should not do anything we have to. If you're a student, no homework with deadlines. Don't do anything that has a deadline, a have to to it, only a want to. Do the things that bring you joy and delight. Go watch birds. For me, that's climbing 14ers. I love climbing a 14 or some of you are like, that does not sound like Sabbath. That sounds like hell. (laughs) But one of the reasons is because I'm out there and I'm on this massive mountain thinking, my God, my dad made this mountain I'm standing on. My dad made those birds and those flowers that are surviving with barely any air and and all this and all. And look at, he created this and he sustains this. Certainly he can sustain me. So I don't know what that looks like for you. For me, it's reading. It's climbing a 14er. It's going to lunch with Jossie. Can I also encourage this? Disconnect from the news. Like, don't watch any news. Disconnect from your phone. Turn it off if you can. Get away from the screens. But specifically, this is the reason I say the news. We live in a world where information is not related to action. Meaning, we have news that is not only 24 hours, but it's from every corner of the globe. It used to be that news came from your town, 
right? So if you knew something was wrong, you might know the big news of the day, but, but otherwise, you, if there was a problem, it was down the street. You could go help. Now there's problems across the world. You can't do anything about it. It's cultivating this information does not lead to action dynamic in our world, which is not helpful if you think about a Sunday or us reading the scriptures, etc. That's an aside. But point being that when we have lots of information, but we can't do anything about it, it causes anxiety to rise in our lives. So disconnect. I'd encourage you to disconnect for Sabbath. Actually, I'd encourage you to disconnect from the news a lot more than that. See, Sabbath... The point of Sabbath is it creates rest, not just for our bodies, though we need that. Sabbath creates rest for our minds. Sabbath creates rest for our our emotions. Sabbath creates rest for our souls. Jesus is talking about worry, not because he's like, yeah, life is better if you don't worry. Don't worry, be happy. He's, He's caring about our souls. Which is why Augustine in his book, Confessions, says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Sabbath causes us to live in to that rest. And when we come to a place where we're like, I'm stopping. The world will go on without me. Oh, wow, it does happen without me. God's got this day. God's got every day. God's got me. So our weekly practice, we have a weekly practice. Every week I want you to think about this, live into this, something that we all want to do together. Maybe for some of you, you're like, you totally got Sabbath. I think it's something we evaluate and reevaluate throughout our lives. Sabbath looks like different things throughout our lives. If you've got toddlers, you're like, changing diapers doesn't give me delight. You need to keep changing diapers on Sabbath, okay? (laughs) But it will change throughout your life. So evaluate and reevaluate. We also have a drift oftentimes towards productivity, some of us more than others. So this is our weekly practice. I want you to evaluate your schedule and ask, what would it take for me to take a weekly Sabbath? What would it take? And ask this question, am I becoming less anxious? A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about money, the question was, am I becoming more generous? See, because as we follow Jesus, the, the, the goal is for each one of us to become more like Jesus. So if we're going to be more like Jesus, we're going to be more generous. If we're going to be more like Jesus, we're going to become less anxious. And if there was anyone that had the possibility of being anxious, it would have been Jesus. He was walking the earth knowing what was coming. But we find Jesus exceptionally present to the moment. And if you want to identify any area of time when Jesus might have experienced this, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross. Not weeks, months, years before, days. He was very aware of what was coming. And what does he ask God? Is there another way? But out of that time of prayer, notice he didn't handle it on his own. I got to grit my teeth and bear it. He brings it to God, wrestles it with God, and comes out of there saying, not my will, but yours, and walks into Jerusalem. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done. In the first century, some documentation about 
a first century believer. His name was Titidios. And he was known as a worrier prior to putting his faith in Jesus about anything and everything. You know, anything comes up, well, you hear about this, and I'm worried about that. And what about, are you wearing your helmet? You know, you might do this, and you know. Helmets are good, by the way. But after he became a follower of Jesus, something dramatic happened in his life. And he became known as Titidios Amerimnos. Amerimnos meant the man who never worries. Could that be true of you? Could somebody maybe call you that? Katie Amerimnos. Katie, the woman who never worries. Justin, the man who never worries. Ellie, the girl who never worries. Could it be true of you? The answer is yes. As I found myself worshiping in the middle of the night, it was dark literally and it was dark figuratively. But over time, the light started to break through. And worship was the vehicle that brought me and started to lift me out of the pit. Jesus was the lifter. See, what I realized was is that focusing on Jesus was all about Jesus being the fear fighter, not me. And so as Callie just mentioned we're gonna, earlier, we're going to finish today with a little longer worship. So can we all stand together? And we're going to turn the lights off. We're going to turn the lights off as we worship because maybe it's a, a metaphor, a picture, and maybe it's a picture of you. And maybe it's not for you, but it's a, it's a picture for you of someone else. But it's a reminder that even in the dark, whether it be the literal dark or the figurative dark, that we worship, that we focus our eyes on the king of the kingdom, trusting him in the middle of the darkness. Let's worship. Your name is healing. Your 
Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 